Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today, my guest is Nick Scone. He's the director of the new film, Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, which airs Wednesday, September 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Vice TV. The documentary features interviews with David Cross, Janine Garofalo, Mark Marin, Matthew Broderick, Rob Riggle, Nathan Lane, Gilbert Gottfried, Chris Kattan, Cedric the Entertainer, Louis Black, Doug Stanhope, Jimmy Carr, Russell Peters, Scott Thompson, and so many others that I'm forgetting at least uh, two dozen names. It's an incredible film. I really enjoyed it. Um, Definitely recommend you checking this out. Big thanks to Nick for taking the time to speak with me about the film. I also want to thank Bookman's for sponsoring the show, and thanks to Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Hope you enjoy. (laughs) As As soon as you said that, my Wi-Fi just disappeared. It was as if it was if you jinxed it. It was like no, no, I, like, I did. The perfect timing. That's just been the nature of things. So it perfectly encapsulates the last year. So how are you, man? I'm doing. I'm doing all right. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciated it. Um, I really love the film. I actually sat down and watched it twice. Not something I do very often. Um, the first time I was just testing the screener leak to make sure it worked and I ended up sitting through the whole thing. I uh, had no intention of it, stayed up way too late that night. Um, and it just, this is a fascinating film and I'm really glad you made it. So congratulations, you made a really special thing here. Thank you, thank you for, for I'm glad you enjoyed it enough to watch it twice. <laughs> well, it, labor of love for you. This took five years to complete, is that correct? Yeah, this was, uh, I mean, this was an idea I, I had had for a long time and um, just finally had kind of the gumption uh, to finally try and do something about it five years ago. Um, and so, yeah, it was a five-year process for Julie and I. I, I basically, I like I said, I had the idea and I uh, had met Julie at a friend's wedding um, and she's a comedy journalist and I had... Uh, read something written by Tim Ferriss, uh, who was basically like, um, you know, if you have some idea you want to work on or a project or something, you know, is there a list of five people you could email right now that could help you? And I was like, well, I, I met a comedy journalist. So she she could even tell me if this is just a good idea. Like even even if we don't make it, just like, should I should anyone make this or, you know, yeah. or whatever. So um so I pitched the idea to her and she was like, oh no, I haven't, I haven't seen something like this. Uh, and um, we both were on the same wavelength of what we wanted to show, what we wanted to portray, the kind of story we wanted to tell, um, who we wanted to focus on narrative wise. And so, I mean, obviously you discover a lot of things in the process, but, but yeah, so we, we basically just the two of us, you know, we would borrow camera gear from my roommate <laughs> uh, uh, and like audio gear. And, you know, we would just show up the, the two of us and try and figure out how are we going to light this green room in the back of this club, yeah. uh, you know, in a, in a minute's notice. Um, and, uh, you know, we kind of did that for for about three or four years, just kind of doing it on our own, getting more stories so that we could start to edit the footage together and so that we could share what our vision with people, you know, it's hard, you know, it's hard for people to, even if they're creative people to, to imagine what you're picturing sometimes. And so sometimes they just have to see it. And so 
we our approach was kind of you know we'd rather this be a a project that we're like we are making this one way or the other do you want to help us you know and uh that got us to the point where we eventually had enough footage that we could could cut like a sizzle reel and um pitch it to places and and finally found a home uh with vice uh who could could help us finish it and um hire a fair use lawyer and, and uh figure out how we're going to shoot these interviews remotely during a pandemic mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff so it um was a labor of love that that thankfully other people once they could see what we see started to fall in love with it too well it's a film that not inadvertently because i think even five years ago this would have been um spoken to about something that was going on in the culture that has only amplified since 2001 um but now um as, you know recent events the way that this film i mean it could not be coming out at a more appropriate time than right now it feels like this is something that you would, could have thought of a month ago and said okay with everything that's going on in the world now i think we need to put this out right now so <laughs> what's it has to be yeah. a I, and I don't know if that's a reassuring or depressing notion. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's interesting now, um, which maybe this is what happens to all art, which is it's always going to be viewed through the lens in which you are at the moment, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, for like, a, we had a filmmaker friend who watched a rough cut a year ago where we're smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. And for him at the time, he's like, you know, I really didn't want to watch a documentary about 9-11 with the mood <laughs> I was in. But when I watched it, it, it helped me at that time of the pandemic because I was like, yes, things have been really bad before where I thought we're not going to get through this. We're not going to be able to joke. And then we did. We find a way as a society to, to deal with the issues that we're struggling with and uh, comedians and entertainers and leaders help us, you know, process these tragic events and we find a way through it. And, and now given current events with the war the you know, it's, it's, it's strange to think that, you know, maybe three years ago, we'd be debating like, oh, are we talking too much about the war and the lead up to the, to Iraq uh, now, you know, is it, is it too much to, to go into Afghanistan? But we kind of thought, well, look it, it, that, it, this triggered this this you know avalanche of history that dovetailed into what comics were talking about, and so we should leave it in. And and now today it feels like oh you know thank goodness we included that and people like Janine and her <laughs> comments of saying like this is what's going to happen. This is going to be bad. We should not do this. And you know hopefully to remind people that yeah it wasn't just. Um, it wasn't a thing that everyone was for, that there was many people who were against and speaking out against it at the time. And maybe hopefully in the future, we'll listen to some of those voices and maybe not, um, you know, try to destroy them. Like Jane's, uh, you know, getting death threats and all those things just yeah. because she was stating something now that seems to everyone is like. It's completely reasonable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so hopefully we, we, you hope that as a country and a society and a culture, we can learn those lessons. And I don't know if this helps remind people of these things, then it's great. And, and who knows in five years, maybe there'll be something else in this film that will connect with an audience then because of 
whatever cycle we found ourselves repeating, you know? Yeah, I, I think that could be the case. And having um, the juxtaposition of things like the Bill O'Reilly clip, where he says something along the lines of, if you don't support the military, just shut up. And the way that he says it, it's not like, it's so, the statement in and of itself is gross anyway, but the way that he says it was such just disdain and hatred. And you see people that are simply saying like, hey, I think this is a bad idea. This is not what they're telling you it is. It's not that. And people that are just questioning it, the idea that you know, Bill Maher simply was arguing with what the actual definition of a word was, and he lost his job over it. And he knew he was going to lose his job. Um, as much as I disagree with the guy, I mean, he knows the definition of the word coward. He knows the yeah. definition. Yeah, I mean, that that's, you know, it's, you're not a coward in that situation because you're doing something that's fucking scary and you're facing it. And that's, that can't be cowardice at that point. But we want to, instead of understand, any time that we choose not to understand something and we frame it in these really easy um, to digest pieces, I think we're bound to repeat those same mistakes again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and like we hadn't really thought of it, but uh, Al Jean, who's the Simpsons showrunner, when his, he's saying like, you know, he just stated a fact, yeah. and, and all of a sudden yeah. we were, we he was like, oh, I can lose my job for just stating a fact, <laughs> you know? Um, and but it, it, yeah, I mean, hopefully it it is a reminder to people of. Um, with the Bill Riley thing and the the certain people who are like, you can't, whenever, I guess maybe it's the thing of like, you, whenever someone says you can't argue, there's no argument. Yeah. And, you know, as much as you sometimes disagree with what the other side is arguing, uh, like you said, like, I probably don't agree with everything that Bill says, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I'm not going to say he can't say it and that we can't well, discuss it and why I agree with it or disagree with it or what parts we can find agreement on. But um i think that 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 uh, that's a big takeaway uh, from us from from doing this is you know you people not talking about things doesn't seem to help anyone it just makes things fester and you know i i don't i can't speak for janine but you know i'm sure there's a part of her who is just like i, I try i tried you know like whatever mm -hmm bad things happened afterwards she can say i tried i did protest i did do those things i did try to do the right thing and even if i couldn't stop it at least i tried and so uh you know sometimes um i don't know it's being on the right side of history thing of of in the moment you get painted the bad guy and then in retrospect you're like oh no she was she was the one who was right she we she we should have listened to her you know well, it's something as um the time was so just, it felt so odd. It felt so, I, the world's never going to normalize again. And then I don't know that it fully has since then. There, it was something as odd as the Dixie Chicks controversy and those kinds of things where you're just like, Jesus Christ, man, the, the controversies over any questioning. I mean, it's just straight up authoritarianism where um, to me, uh, in my estimation, in my analysis, that's how that explains Donald Trump and how you get to that point um, where we have, where we are, really getting close to this idea and you have the January 6 attacks and those things and it's the it's all seated in these moments at this time and the way that we reacted to it and I think that we're now we're getting what we sort of deserve for allowing this to go on for this long and we all play a part in it and and I think too um you know we did uh I mean this is this was again like a thing we debated when doing it is consciously how much do we 
talk about Donald Trump or, or right. any of those things. And and we've all we, talked about him enough. Yeah, it felt like well, it's not necessarily tied directly to what we're doing. And we we he's in there, and there's a joke about him. So yeah. it's not like we're pretending he doesn't exist. But I I think um, kind of to your point, like you know, uh, Liz Winstead, who was one of the co-creators of The Daily Show, like her point of, you know, the media, the the news media, they they failed in their job. They were just accepting whatever was was being fed to them by the White House press uh, corps and uh, or press releases. And so they weren't questioning, they weren't doing their job. And so if when when people are just um you know the, the I can't remember but the term, but when you know the two side isms of media of like oh we've got to portray both sides and and right the, be objective and it's like but but being really objective would be calling out things that aren't true, not reporting them, saying that they aren't true, you know. And I so I think Liz's point was you know it, it in some ways it became comedians like uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and uh, now we have John Oliver and yeah. Uh, Trevor Noah to to be the people who have to have to fill in the gaps that the news media has created it by not just um, by just accepting what uh, at face value is if there isn't a real truth behind uh, whatever uh, soundbite is being uh, offered uh, you know by the by this person at this time. Well, the it's not balanced or objective journalism when you take the press release from the White House and you don't analyze it, you regurgitate it. If you take that information, you analyze it, you look at it and you try to find truth in it, you try to find falsehoods in it and you come up, two different people come up with different ideas about it and you have a thoughtful conversation about what those comments mean. Um, you're, that's appropriate. When you're doing the other, it's, that's propaganda. Um, when you're simply repeating what the powers that be say. And I think that that idea that came up, um, I, I'm spacing his name, but the gentleman from The Onion was saying this idea of, you know, when you're seeing society crumble in front of you, you really can't have an ironic disposition at that point. You can't approach it in that way because all the things the you know that held society together are falling apart. Um, but when you don't do that, when you don't approach it, when you don't have that, it's far more dangerous, I think. And I think Gilbert Gottfried and a few other people, they were incredibly brave in what they did. And I, I don't use that lightly because they did really, I mean, Gilbert did end up throwing his career away in a lot of ways and lost a ton of jobs because of jokes. And I mean, this was the 9-11 guy. This was the aristocrats guy. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was um, Todd Hansen, who's the the writer at The Onion. And yeah, he's Thank just you. saying, you know, yes. it, it went, it, it's hard to make jokes about the government when the government build when government buildings are literally being destroyed like the pentagon you know like, yeah. like you know um so uh, yeah and, and and folks like gilbert and it is I, I mean uh we try to show that they're you know as much as it's about comedians we, we did want to have something about like the, the like heroes the first responder heroes who yes. who are there and and, you know, I don't think it, any of us would be like comedians or heroes just like them. Like, I don't think that's the case, but I, I but there is um, a nobility. There you go. To, that's the better word. Yes. Yeah. To, 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 to be like, you, you know, I could get in trouble for stating this, but I feel like the comment I'm making uh, 
is worthy of that risk. Um, and, uh, you know, Bill Maher and Gilbert and, um, you know, even like we didn't expect when we interviewed Daryl Hammond that he would have a story about a backlash because yeah. and he said, and I didn't think it was, you know, I didn't think it was going to happen because I'm just the guy who makes goofy impressions. Like, who would get mad at me for anything? But all of a sudden it was like, oh no, you cannot do an impression of the president. That That is not allowed. And to be like, we can't make fun, if, you know, we can't make fun of him at all, then kind of like you're saying that it's uh, the authoritarian dear leader thing. And we, you know, that's not good either. Um, yeah. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, when you have the press secretary standing up and saying, you cannot make light of this situation. There is no room for humor in this. And this is, and when you don't have journalists at that immediate moment standing up and saying, no, 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 that that's wrong, that we go along with that idea that, no, you will be you will be silenced. You will you will not speak out against this. Um, and in that same at the same time is that I think this is something that's bigger than just a left right issue. I mean, I about as liberal as they come. But when it comes to people of similar ilk, we're not very tolerant of outside speech a lot of the time. And in fact, we shut people down and want them to lose careers because of dissenting voices. Um, we will take that away from people probably as much, if not more than the right side at this point. And I, it's not something I saw coming and it's not something that I'm very comfortable with at this point. Do you see it that way also or? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, uh, so my co-director Julie is a comedy journalist and, and um, I know a, a thing she's been struggling with is, is seeing on Twitter or something how many comedians now uh, can get dis destroyed for, for a joke that doesn't work, you know, <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know, the kind of, I think it, like Cedric the Entertainer in, in the film, like he says, like, you know, we, you don't know what too soon is until you try. And yeah. um, I think there, there is some fear in the comedy world that, oh, I shouldn't even try to approach the line because it's not worth it. And, and then, you know, that's a, that's a case where we're, we're, we're losing uh, potential points of view and voices. Um, because they're fearful of, of using their right to free speech. And whether, yeah, like you said, whether you're on a liberal or a conservative, that should be something that you, do, that you don't want either way. And, you know, uh, as much as I disagree with like Bill Maher on some times, and sometimes he has ideas that I do agree with, but sure. and his big thing is like, you know, you can't, you, we have to have a dialogue. I like, I, I, we, people have to be able to speak their minds and you can totally disagree with that. And I think Jimmy Carr in the film says, you know, if it's, if it's not your taste, like, great, turn it off. Don't watch it. If, if you don't like that person's tweet, don't hit the like button, but there's no, but you don't have to uh, say like, oh, no one should, I, because I don't like this or I don't agree with this. No one should be able to hear this. And this person should never be able to speak ever again. Um, you know, uh, and I think like, we tried to have an example of, you know, maybe something that is too far, which is um, there was the comic who was making jokes about, you know, be a patriot, punch a cab driver. And, you know, I feel like Stefano, that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And Dean Nobel talks about like, you know, that is not, it's not a common thing for comics to tell their comics what they can or can't talk about. Right. But in that case, he did feel, look, 
But this joke you're telling in quote unquote is it's it's potentially inciting people to violence. And right now people are literally getting killed because they wear they look like Muslims and because they wear turbans. And even if they're not Muslim, they're getting like people are getting beat up and killed and shot. And maybe that's not the time for this joke, you know, and, and I, maybe that's the kind of you can't yell fire in a packed theater thing like yes sure. there are, there is a limit to free speech but it you know um it can't necessarily just be a limit set on uh, i have an ideological difference with, with you or or i'm personally offended by something um by that what you say uh it doesn't seem like that should be the limit but but kind of what Tom said which is if you're if you're setting people violence that's probably that, that is probably a speech that's going to like maybe, maybe that's not a really uh, actually a joke. <laughs> I think that's that's a good. <laughs> I think most people would agree with that as the and some people might not, but if you're using that as the boundary, um, I think that's fair. I, I don't feel like I ever have the right to not be offended about anything. We all have personal things and personal lines that will be that we assume, and I say assume because we think that I think that you have lines that you think are there, but oftentimes they get crossed and somebody finds that way in and an angle on something that you never thought you could find humor in. And you'll absolutely find humor in it. I mean, I've literally never been to a funeral that was for somebody that I knew that I haven't laughed at at some point, that the people that knew this person that are you know, mem- remembering them, honoring them, something will happen that will make you laugh. Um, you'll share a story or just something will happen along the lines. Uh, Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookmans. So I've been into movie novelizations for a long time. Uh, One of the first ones that I picked up was the novelization of Halloween 4. Um, I know this isn't most people's favorite film in the series, but it's always been a special one to me. I think this was, yeah, this definitely was the first Halloween film that I saw in a theater and I picked up the novelization, oh, I, either the weekend before I saw it or the weekend I saw the film. And it's been one that always stuck with me. And last time when I went to Bookman's, I actually saw a copy of it. I have lost my copy years ago, but there it was, sitting in Bookman's. And I, out amongst the stuff they have out for Halloween, they had this novelization. And I was really excited um, to pick this up again because it had been so long since... I read this book. I was curious how it would hold up because I've seen the movie recently um, and I wanted to know how this book held up. And it was right off the bat that like, this is not written in a way that you would expect a Halloween four novelization to be written. Um, I I know this might be getting into NPR territory, reading something from a book on the show, but I just want to read this one little excerpt from it. And just to me, it shows how, talented writer uh, Nicholas Grabowski is, and yeah, just listen to this. Somewhere within the far horizon, despite the encompassing darkness, a cold fall breeze whispered through the fields of corn, silent words of somber hush, like a mother to her child. And the whisper found the industrial harvesters, which in turn would soon rest in preparation for the following day's work. Crows remained perched on the shoulders of scarecrows, until the wind grew from a whisper to a scream and the rain drove them off into the sky and the blackness. To me, that, that that's something that really sets the mood right out of the gate, that this is 
written in a way that you wouldn't expect. And normally you just have these little asides and you're able to see kind of a little bit of the personality of that character that just has one line in the film and kind of opens it up. But it, he does such a good job with this particular novel, um, with this novelization that it actually improves the film for me. So yeah, thank you to Nicholas for writing such an amazing book and thank you to Bookman's for reintroducing it to me. So remember Bookman's, they have your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. And it's not that funerals are funny. It's just that there is that tension that's required for us to deal with things like that. And I think that's when comedy is most important is when we're handling these heavy, heavy situations. Like it's a way in instead of just yeah. being soapboxy. Yeah, like, um, like uh, Russell Peters talks about how you, there, like you're saying, there's this bubble and it's the only way to pop it um, is to do that. And um, I think it's gonna, it's not, it's not in the film currently, but it'll hopefully be a bonus clip that we get to share, which is we, we have an interview with um, uh, this woman, uh, uh, I believe it's Luisa Diaz. Um, and she worked at the 9-11 Memorial Museum interviewing the families about loved ones for like the exhibits were better about uh, the people uh, who were killed that day. And she would say, you know, it was a hard job. Obviously you're talking to people who have lost loved ones, but she's like, but a lot of those conversations outside of what happened to them that day would be about how funny they were and the things yeah. they would joke about with the other firefighters or the other uh, police officers. And um, she said almost inevitably, they were going to be laughing at some point because of an anecdote or a story about their loved one. And so like you're saying at a funeral, like, um, you know, uh, maybe it's not everyone's nature. It's definitely in my nature. I know that I want to try and find the light in the darkness. I, I want their, even at a funeral, I want, uh, you know, I want to remember this person, not just, have the only thing that reminds me of this person is now sadness. I want to remember the joy uh, and those things. And, and, and that's probably what comedy just does in general is it reminds you that there is joy in life, even in the terrible things, you know, um, I, I don't know if it's, I can't remember if it's Mark Maron who says, but you know, they were making, they were making jokes in Auschwitz. Like, we, like every, you know, like we humor is, is this, uh, tool or you know a, a bomb that helps helps us in, in, as far as we can tell in, in all of you know human history you know there's there's probably like someone was probably making a joke about uh you know in, in back in the caves when a guy bumped his head or something <laughs> like it's just yeah. like people you know chimps chimps laugh at somebody falling down like you know it's just uh in our dna to try and enjoy life in some way you know it's deep in there. Life is pretty, um, it's pretty hard. It, it's, there's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of disappointment and stress and humor is the thing that helps kind of bind all those moments together. That makes them worth going through. Um, humor stands out moments like that. They, they're important because that's not the standard moment of life. You know, you're nine to five, uh, paying your mortgage and paying your car and whatever it is that you're doing, all the stresses that you have in your life. Um, there's not as much joy in that, but those releases, you have those moments that you have where you can just let go of that and escape in that, even if it's for just a half second. And that's why to me, comedy is very important 
but it was, and I love that your film goes into this. It was the, there was a time period where we shifted from the most informed people were people that were watching the daily show, which is really, and that's something that's not really touched on, but it was something that, you know, I, during the Bill O'Reilly and John Stewart debates they had a couple of times. And it just, you know, when they started interviewing people and people, the average Fox news listener or viewer versus the average South park viewer, apparently, and daily show viewer, the daily show viewers were by far more informed on current events. And that's, we're not, we haven't moved from that at this point. I think, I think if you watch John Oliver, once a week, you probably have a much better idea of what's going on in the world than somebody that watches Maddow or whatever the equivalent, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. I mean, I made a, I mean, when I was in high school, I made a flippant joke uh, to a teacher for when I wasn't paying attention in class or something. And he was just like, like, I'm boring you. And I was like, well, ah, you know, this was in the, in the nineties. I was like, you know, I could learn more from watching an hour of CNN that I could in this class, which I think was true at the time. And now I don't know if that is the case. Uh, you know, I don't know if I would, if you do watch cable news, if you are learning that much, you're hearing, you're definitely learning about people's opinions on things, but I don't know if you're actually learning about the topic and what it involves. And it is pretty uh, wild to think that now John, that now John Oliver is, is doing the reporting that we would think of, of, that we would get from uh, like a 60 minutes show, you know, really deep diving into a topic and telling you the history about it and what's wrong and what we can do about it. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, I, I'm sure you, if you just saw a clip of John Oliver doing stand up, you know, 15 years ago, you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely what this guy is going to be doing two decades from now is, you know, is, is uh, trying to, to reform, you know, help with prison reform, you know. Uh, and, but I mean, it's the it's the important work that needs to be done. And thank God there's people that are doing it still. Um, that long form investigative journalism, you just there's vice is one of the places where we have that as well, which is makes sense that your film has found a home there because I think that they're doing thoughtful work there. There's it's you know, New York Times and obviously some Washington Post still have teams of that, but it's becoming less and less common where it really matters on the local level newspapers are disappearing and the local municipalities don't have people that are watching them to know what's going on and to call these things out like we once did. And it's just a scary time in that sense. Yeah. I mean, there, I guess the, the, I don't know, some of the hope is, is that once upon a time, you could only get your news from four TV stations for, a half an hour or you know twice twice a night uh, kind of thing um to know what's happening in the world so maybe the hope is is that the internet uh, and twitter for all of its issues can still do a thing where it can touch you can find out about things that you wouldn't otherwise or you can get you know uh in-depth the uh, threads about the homeless issue in Los Angeles yeah. and what's happening and what council members are doing that is not going to be on the late, you know, the late local CBS news. They're, they're not going to be getting deep in those, those trenches. So, um, you know, you would hope it would, you would get both where you would have a, a functioning news media that uh, would still see, see the value in doing those things. Right. Um, but so hopefully uh, the new the next generation of people maybe they 
can uh, you hope that they're internet literate enough to to find to find the news and and you also hope that but it doesn't also just get uh get focused into the news they want to hear because i because that's also that's the the downside of the getting all your information from the internet is if you don't have good news sources in the first place uh you're just uh, clogging the the pipes in your brain with more uh nonsense you know well that's the uh that's Internet literacy is incredibly important. Hopefully something they'll start teaching in middle schools as maybe even early as elementary school school because it's incredibly important and something that uh, people my age with gray hair could probably use as well. Uh, when I look yeah, at my I mean, family's Facebook feeds, I, I think that they could use some assistance. So, yeah, I mean, I had a, a friend who was uh, working in schools as a teacher and she said, you know, uh, you have to... Uh, teach kids how to search for something like the 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 keywords for looking something up on google because if you if you if you type in the wrong words you're going to get the you're not going to yeah. get the answer you're looking for and she would be surprised you know i think you know maybe for uh a, a gen xers or for older generations like that uh that um because we had to start out with the hard research of like going to the library and looking through the cards yeah. that we've, we, once we get to this, they're like, oh, this is so much easier. But if, that, sure. but if that's the only tool you have, uh, you know, if someone, if we don't teach people how to use that tool, you know, a, a hammer is worthless if you're holding it from the wrong side, you know? <laughs> I guess it depends on what your object is. If it's to yes. put in a nail, probably if it's just tear something apart, it might work. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and same thing, I guess, with the internet, unfortunately. But I, I got a one thing I, I know we're going long here, but I did the people that you got for this is incredible. It was literally just one person after the other. It was pretty much every, all of my favorite comedians, because I'm 45. So it was all this, this all happened. And these voices that you were covering were the, a lot of the alt comics at the time that really made me realize that comedy could be something a lot more than I thought it was when I was a teenager. Um, you know, like David Cross and Janine and these people that just meant so much to me and have continued to mean so much and actually had a profound impact on not only who I am politically, but just as the books I read, the art that I consume, all that it had a huge impact on my life. And I'm wondering, were there specific people you had in mind or was it just you were finding what you could and shaping it afterwards? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it kind of it honestly really started with kind of Julie's Rolodex and and the yeah. people we knew did kind of at the start. Um, but we did try to, I mean, because there's a lot of comics, and comics are often known for having opinions on th on comedy. So there there's a potential to talk to a lot of people, but we did really want to focus on the people who were there at that time uh trying to figure out what to do now and what was appropriate to talk about or not talk about and how they should use their humor uh uh in ways that maybe they hadn't before and so that was kind of the you know our, our uh, guide poster or um what have you for that was to 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 focus on the people who were there and dealing with it or um if it's someone like uh, a younger comic of, of if, if it's have they talked about this have they talked about 9 11 in their stand-up and 
is it obviously that's something that is important to, you know, um, like Pete Davidson or somebody like that, like sure. th- yeah. getting those, tr- trying to talk to those kind of people because um, it obviously affected them and their comedy and uh, and now how we think about joking about it, um, you know, like, uh, I can't remember who says it now, but just saying like, you know, if Pete's okay with the, the joke, making a joke <laughs> about yeah. his dead dad, then then maybe we can't, we can't tell him to shut up because it's because he's the closest to the closest to that tragedy of anyone. And so, you know, who can say, oh, you can't joke about that. Um, so that, that was kind of the tenant was was to to limit it to, to those point of views, because it would get very easy. And we did. I mean, uh, we got a great group of people and we we. All the storylines that we wanted to touch on, we were able to touch on and talk to people and. In the cases, if we couldn't talk to someone, we could find an archival clip of them talking about it. So we at least got a sense of their uh, opinion. And so that was a thing of, of we got all our storylines, we were happy and, and that allowed us to, to be more um, selective in who we would talk to of like, oh, this person is great and they're a big name, but do they, have they made a joke about this that they can talk about what, what they're thinking and process or were they there? And if they weren't, then it's like, I don't know if we're going to have time for them. Like we, we had so many great people already that it was like, I don't, we, we just unfortunately don't have time for, to just pop people in. Cause we like them or, you know, like Julia, yeah. she, uh, you know, she's friends with a lot of these people. And so I, I know it was tough for her because people would want to be in it. And she, you know, she's, she's like, I had to make a lot of phone calls and <laughs> to be like, you know, sorry, but it, you know, it's, it, it, it's good. So it's good to hear that, uh, that you thought that, that, we had the people you wanted to see because they're the well, people who we were like, I, hopefully this is who people want to hear from on this stuff. Well, when I, I go back and I put it in my mind and thinking like from this point of view, the too soon, the story that you're telling, um, the first thing that came to mind when I thought about 9-11 and comedy was The Onion. So I was glad that was a big piece of it because that's how I discovered The Onion was it was actually through the Jerry Bruckheimer article, um, the world has become. And I, and I and that was just like, oh my God, there's there is something here that you can actually find this humor in, but it was like, it was so cathartic. I remember crying after reading, like getting through that piece and through those, um, it was the God piece also, and just these other things. And it was just, God damn, okay, this is how you do something like this. This is amazing. And it just opened up my eyes to all these different things. And then the Letterman piece, which by the way, the editing, the way that you tell that story with using the opener and then the archival footage, it's seamless. And it does feel like you're getting this full picture of everything with John Stewart and his point of view and all this building up to this, how do we do this in Saturday Night Live? And you're just going between all these reactions at that kind of exact moment and telling that story that I wouldn't have thought of. I'd kind of, I never think of the producers, but that was such a huge piece of that. And I'd completely forgotten about that. So yeah, I was really happy to see all these kind of things brought together in this way. Yeah, it was great. And funny enough, the the producers, that was, um... Uh, one of our executive producers is Sean Hayes and mm-hmm. uh, his production company, Hazy Mills, and him and his partner, Todd, that was kind of their big suggestion was like, we love we love this. It's got a lot of great stuff. But what about Broadway? Like Broadway got shut down, too. Yeah. And thankfully for us, Sean is friends with with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. And so he could put in a call to to get them to sit down with us uh, and talk about it, because, um, yes, that was that was a storyline that that you know, did, what didn't exist six months ago that we managed to, to get in the can and, oh, wow. and weave into the story. Yeah. 
that and it fits so perfectly in there and and the the other one was just the the scott thompson one as a kids in the hall nerd for life and just seeing that and never having had a chance to see that show it was one of those things where I, it's just to see like his building up to this point and it's, it's heartbreaking there's so many things that are tragedies obviously but and that's uh, i'm not comparing it to anything else but it is something that an artist that I cared a lot about, you know, never met the guy, but I always admired and loved his work. And to see just that whole thing, this cathartic experience that he was having and turning this personal tragedy of his own life into art. And then another tragedy rips that away from him. It's just, fuck. So it's just, that, that's a heartbreaker for me. Yeah. That was, um, that was when I have, uh, have a friend, Jonathan London, uh, who does a show called Geekscape and he had had uh, Scott Thompson on to talk about it. and, I, I don't think he, he knew this is where the conversation was going, but it ended up, they started talking about that show and I love And So after he recorded the interview, he was like, Nick, you have to talk to Scott Thompson. He ha he's got a story, a 9-11 yeah. story for you. Um, and so I was really glad that we, that Scott talked about it and that he would share some of the footage. And I don't know, I don't know if, I do, this is kind of a fingers crossed thing, but he said he hadn't watched it since, since he had done the performances and they had recorded it way back then and this was the first time he watched it and he had thought like oh maybe maybe i can release this maybe i can do something like this now so so i don't oh, wow who know who knows if if that'll be the case but it would be great if this helped him um share share that that show because um uh you know it's like it's fun we have you know you have a lot of archivists and our archivist who watched this he was like this is great like he's like this is what makes the job worthwhile is to see this scott thompson show that i'd never heard of and no one's really ever seen um so it would be great uh if if moving forward scott was able to to share that finally with, with god everyone. i hope so I, I hope that's the case i i think they talked about it in the oral history that came out like two years ago something like that there's the kids in the hall oral. i think that's where i heard about it but yeah, it's something I wasn't aware of until just the last couple of years. So I'm glad that he's taught, and maybe this was the catalyst that he was talking about it and it's just now it's out there again. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's something that it would be, it would be great for, for Scott, just because yeah, he had, he has been through so much. It would be great for, for him to, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, like I can't imagine having now worked on this for five years, I can't imagine if suddenly something happened and we couldn't, release it or ever show it to anyone you know you're, uh you're right there though you're at the finish line you have till the ninth i believe right <laughs> it's it's eight, yeah so eight, okay. oh, we got we got one week uh so hopefully nothing happens in that I, I think it's i think i don't know i think it's scheduled on the air on air so so at this point I think I you're think, good man i think we're good but it it, it is uh yeah i am hopeful uh that and we had a, a talk with scott because he because he wanted to know he's like how much of the show is it like footage is in the show and we were like well not a lot it's mostly just you telling the story and and he's like okay good because i i might i might i might be using that footage and i was like please that's please awesome do. like we don't we don't want to spoil your you know your show so so oh, we're man. happy to to pull back on that footage if, if you're going to do something with it so well, that, that's a a, a hope a hope well, then if, if there's the the hashtag campaign or whatever nonsense that we do now to try to let people know that we want to see it, I mean, I take all my money. I, I would absolutely pay to see that. So 
but thank you for taking the time to talk about the film. It's uh, next week, the 8th on Vice. I think people are going to share this film. This is the kind of thing that um, I wish I was seeing this in a theater. I wish that I was seeing this in a room full of people that I didn't know, because this is the kind of film that will inspire conversation, I think, conversation that we often avoid that we need to have. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, of course. And thank you for taking the time, man. It was nice to meet you. Nice meeting you too. All right. Take care. <laughs> All right, bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck, give me hope.
Voice Crack.